This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England. Leslie Kruger is an award-winning Canadian author and filmmaker. Her latest novel, Times Squared, follows a reluctant time traveler across centuries and continents as she struggles for a sense of agency in a world dominated by patriarchal preoccupations and war. If that sounds heavy, fear not. Leslie has a knack for blending the weighty topics she explores with a playfulness that makes her brand of historical fiction hard to put down. Before I introduce Leslie, let's meet the heroine of Times Squared, for whom it's currently 1951. They said the war would be over soon, but they always said that. Not that it was officially a war. A police action, the president said, although the newspapers didn't agree. The Korean War, they called it. Eleanor was watching the CBS Evening News to get the latest updates. General MacArthur was eagle-eyeing the North Koreans across the mountains, or at least from his hotel in Japan, where he waggled his cigar at the cameras. Millions of communist Chinese soldiers were marching in, thick red arrows on a map, tracing their route. It sounded less threatening in print than it looked on her aunt's new television set. They called it black and white, but to Eleanor the picture looked black and blue. The world bruised with crisis. More nuclear tests in the Pacific, too. A mushroom cloud bloomed on the television screen, newsreel footage Eleanor had seen before of the beautiful man-made apocalypse. She got up to turn off the set. It wasn't just the news. She had a headache. Yet what was going on in the world left her terrified. North Korea invading South Korea, communism fighting capitalism, nuclear weapons always a threat. And her fiancé was in the thick of it when Eleanor longed for peace and stability after the Second World War. She'd been a child in London during the Blitz, tugged into air raid shelters, her ears ringing with sirens and wails, learning far too much about fear before she was 12 years old. She'd also been an adult during the Blitz, and that wasn't a metaphorical description of a girl who had experienced war. It was the impossible, literal truth. Visions. Eleanor had been having visions lately, some of them brief glimpses of other lives, some long, vivid dreams, months going by in a night. All of her dreams, no matter how long, complete immersions in different times, when she was herself, but life was unimaginably different. She had no idea why this was happening, feeling pushed around by a cosmic mystery. Times Squared, narrated by Helen K. Taylor and written by my guest today, Leslie Kruger. Leslie, welcome to My Life in Books. Well, thank you very much, Red. We've just heard a clip of your protagonist, Eleanor, becoming increasingly aware that she has played this role in the past and maybe in the future. Before we go time-travelling with her, can you introduce her a little bit more to us? I started thinking about Eleanor actually in a in a very odd way years ago. There was a little cafe near us here in Toronto where the woman who ran it behind the counter looked as if she'd stepped out of the 1950s. Her hair, everything was the same. It was as if she had been landed in a different time and was just carrying on with her life. So I began to think about the idea of a woman just jumping through time and suddenly finding herself in different eras, uh, not necessarily including an old-fashioned hairstyle. But Eleanor ended up being a young woman who uh, thinks she was born originally, as the book opens, in the Regency period in England and felt at home there. And yet she keeps jumping through time, experiencing different time frames in ways that nobody she knows does. As far as they're concerned, if they wake up in 1840, they're in 1840 and always have lived lives that brought them 
precisely to that point. But Eleanor increasingly realizes that she is being moved around in time. So she has a mystery to solve. Who's playing with her and why are they doing it? Well, as you say, the novel really begins in the Regency period in 1811, when Eleanor, living with her aunt, is in a kind of love match game with her aunt trying to set her up with the local squire's son. And it's very much like a Jane Austen novel. But there's a war, the Napoleonic War, which is complicating matters. Yeah, war does tend to complicate matters. And it does tend to happen fairly frequently, unfortunately, in the history of our poor old world, so that these forces come down and work on people's lives, forcing them to adjust to something they don't want to adjust to very much. We don't want to adjust to it very much, do we? We'd rather just live in peace. But uh, yes, so Eleanor meets a couple of brothers in 1811, as far as she's concerned, the first time she's lived in. And her aunt is trying to get her to marry the elder son who has the money the younger son is a soldier and about to go off to war. So what sort of choices does a young woman have to make in 1811 when, after all, marriage is her job at whatever class level she finds herself living? It's what will determine her life. Does she take the rich guy <laughs> or in any event, a guy with a guaranteed way to keep her in a degree of prosperity? Or does she roll the dice and go with a traveling soldier? And in this matchmaking game, in the plot of this part of the novel, you are consciously channeling Jane Austen and other authors of the period, like Mary Wollstonecraft, rather playfully examining the role of women in the society that you're looking at. I think that's the underlying premise of the book is the theme running through it is the idea of what roles does society allow women to play in different eras and in what way can they game the rules that they're forced to play in what ways are they unable to so as Eleanor jumps through time from the Regency to the 1840s to the Boer War, First World War, right up to 2010, what roles is she allowed to take on at those various times? And as we move into Victorian times, we see that those roles do change slightly. In the 1850s, with the Indian Mutiny, we see Eleanor has hopes that, well, Queen Victoria has married for love. She's married a younger son. Maybe the same could be true for her. But then by the time that we get to the 1890s, and as you say, Robin, going off to fight in the Boer War, Queen Victoria has been in mourning for 30 years, as she's really subjugated herself to a dead husband. And as Aunt Clara rather wryly remarks, the ideal for women now is of Dickens's Little Nell, a suffering woman who subjugates herself to her husband and her fate. Whereas in Regency times, Jane Austen's heroines actually had a bit more hope. Yes, it's interesting going through the time. I mean, you've mentioned now both Jane Austen and Dickens. And of course, what one does just simply in research is, is read books of the time, not just histories, but the novels to get the diction and so on that, that I don't try and reproduce exactly because it would sound really musty, but that I can play with. And I think another thread running through the novel, as well as the idea of, yes, how the roles women are permitted to play change, is the fact that literature looks at women in certain ways in different eras as well. Literature allows them different roles. Dickens, quite famously, wasn't very good with women. They were either saints or sinners. Um, as a writer, you obviously spend several years writing a book, so you end up writing it on several levels, which 
<laughs> some of these are there for graduate students if ever any of them look at it, but one of the levels in here is with literature, with Jane Austen, with Dickens, with later writers that I read and played with while writing the book is to examine the interplay between societal roles for women and the way literature looked at them because literature could sometimes be subversive as Jane Austen was naughty. Her women actually had a lot of things to say that were repressed later on in Dickens who didn't allow his women to say very much at all. Yes, there's very much that sense that women are there to be. Well, I think the word that keeps popping up is helpmeets of their husbands, companions of their husbands. And yet again, Eleanor and Robert are pulled apart by war, and she only really begins to have more agency by the time of the First World War where we see her story subtly change. She is more able to, well, meet up with Robin for a start. I think one of the things in, in thinking about the book, Robin, the, the soldier, as you've mentioned, does keep going to war, comes back on furloughs, writes letters and so on. In creating him, I realized that one of the things, unfortunately, as Aunt Clara says at a certain point, there will always be another war. So there is always a soldier who's popping up and going away and writing and desperately trying to live and get back to her while society changes, his role changes, and Eleanor's role changes as society uh, copes with the absence of men. And I think in the First World War, it was uh, one of the times that women did begin to have more agency in some of the loosening of the roles that were permitted to them simply because they were required to do work to make up for the immense numbers of men who were leaving and dying. It closed down a bit afterwards, opened up again during the Second World War when we had the famous Rosie the Riveter and many women going in the factories, many women working in different roles. I actually have a 100-year-old mother-in-law. <laughs> and she and I were just talking the other day about at the beginning of the Second World War, uh, when she was going into university, she was actually a member of the math club at her university, which women couldn't join before the war, but they needed, they needed members of the math club. And um, two of her close friends went on from there. One of them became uh, a distinguished mathematician at Columbia University in New York. Another one was the first computer programmer in Canada. So that was the first chance for these women to actually do stuff. So war changes things, it changes men, it changes women. And tracking it over a couple of centuries is, is kind of interesting. Yeah, and actually the fact that you are examining the, these two archetypes, the maiden and the universal soldier, against the backdrop of war time and time again, we see, especially when you travel further back to Boudicca's rebellion of AD 65, to Tudor times, to Restoration times, that Eleanor is, is desperate to try and do something, but her powerlessness is really brought into focus by the fact that she's on the home front, she's a woman, and yet in the First World War, and then especially in the Second World War, and as you go through towards the Vietnam War and Iraq War, we see that she is far more able to do something positive, something that makes her feel less powerless. Well, something in which she feels she can contribute to the world. Mm. I mean, that has been an issue for, for women. You're Within certain contexts, you know, Bodica led um, a rebellion against the Romans. And that, that dip back into the past comes when Eleanor 
is in fact becoming really confused about what's happening to her. She knows something is going on and she starts experiencing a whole group of sort of, she's barraged by lives in the past as she nevertheless moves forward and comes to think about the fact that even in the time of Bodica leading a rebellion, of course, women didn't have all that much power. So they tried generally to do what they could to contribute to their particular cause, which was basically to boot the Romans out of Britain. But there were limitations. So what that leads in terms of questions women have to ask themselves and had to ask themselves in, in various eras is, what can I do within the current structure to try and feel that I'm a citizen of the world? I'm not just uh, you know locked in the home churning butter. What can I do to feel part of a bigger society? And in that sense, what can I do to express my abilities and my intelligence and my understanding, which may well be greater than that of many of the men around me. Yes, and from the very start, Eleanor is described as a clever woman, a bright young woman, which is not necessarily something that is seen as particularly admirable in certain eras of history. Yeah, certainly right in 1811. I mean, she realizes the fact that she seems to be ready to inherit Aunt Clara's estate, or her husband will, makes her really a bit of a catch in the society. But what's held against her is the fact that she is clever. People would really rather that she would inherit the estate and, and be a bit dim, you know, to create fewer problems. Yet, I think it's it's common through society for many, many women in many eras and places, and including today, for cleverness not to be valued, and for women having to use something that isn't valued to find their way forward. Now, she is surrounded by a marvellous ensemble cast of characters who keep reappearing with her throughout the novel. Not always in the same positions, uh, showing how people can move from downstairs to upstairs. I'm thinking particularly of her best friend Kitty and also the rather sinister Mrs McBee and the Count, or is it Countess of Wigan? Uh, you know, one of the things that I want to uh, bring across is I had fun writing this book mm. and I hope people have fun reading it. it. It's supposed to be quite funny and it's supposed to be a bit of a puzzle for people to think about these minor characters and the way that they're changing as well. A friend of mine, actually, the other night we were talking about this book, she just read it for the first time. And she said it made her think of a quote from Salman Rushdie that each book contains a key to reading it. And one of the keys to reading this is to watch the way people do and don't change through the time, whether it is the count or countess, whom I love. <laughs> it's one yes. of my favorite characters because he and she is pretty unedited says what he and she thinks, um, which makes them a subversive force in the, the story. And yes, the somewhat sinister Mrs. McBee, who is a servant, and of course, servants watch, and the, the class of people who employ them don't quite realize the extent to which they're being watched by the people who are working for them, which is, is interesting to contemplate because it allows us to see the main characters from a somewhat different angle and from a very definitely different agenda. Very much so. It is a genre-busting novel and I think if it starts like a Jane Austen novel, it certainly ends up far more in Margaret Atwood territory. And I don't want to give any spoilers, but Eleanor is a time traveller and she, she's a time traveller with a difference. She has no agency and, and there is 
another recurring motif of her as a marionette or a piece on a chessboard. And you're clearly fascinated by the idea of people being manipulated. Well, you know, for the past couple of years through the pandemic, it's certainly been the case of of seeing all sorts of strange forces appearing around the internet and people subscribing to all sorts of very weird things that are in fact not very much in their interest. Um, I won't get too political here, but I think one of the things that does happen is that yes, in society, us small people can be manipulated to meet larger interests. And that's certainly one of the other ideas running through this book with Eleanor being manipulated. But as Eleanor moves through different eras, understands different things about her own position, she doesn't necessarily remember all the details, but I think things are accrued. She gains uh, depth and understanding as she as she moves through time, which one hopes one does as one ages just in a normal lifespan, if indeed this is what we're living. Um, (laughs) And what happens to her, in a sense, is she accrues wisdom in order to deal with the manipulations in society and to be a woman of agency better able to find her way in a very complex world. These are themes that have preoccupied you in your other novels. And after the break, we will come back and discuss one of them, Mad Richard, which certainly picks up on that theme of accruing knowledge, which doesn't always end up being to the character's benefit. Thank you. Yes, it does not. Share your views on the books you love with Red. Email feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail by calling 844-971-1999. This is My Life in Books on AMI-audio. You're listening to My Life in Books with Red Sale, only on AMI-audio. Welcome back to My Life in Books. This week, I'm in conversation with Canadian novelist and filmmaker Leslie Kruger. Before the break, we were discussing her most recent novel, Times Squared. Now it's time to rewind to 2017 and her novel, Mad Richard, which is the tragic true story of Victorian artist Richard Dadd. And Leslie, I believe you have a family connection. Yes, Richard Dad was a cousin back in the day, mid-19th century. Actually, his uncle was one of the first of my husband's ancestors to come to Canada, and my husband is directly descended. So I think I did the genealogy at one point, which crosses my eyes, but I'm his um, cousin-in-law five times removed. And as I say, it's a tragic story. The novel begins with Charlotte Bronte visiting Richard Dad in Bedlam, the notorious Victorian lunatic asylum, as it was called in those days, where he has been locked up for life because he murdered his father. As the real Richard Dad did in his life, yes. The encounter between Charlotte Bronte and Richard Dad could well have happened. We can't tell if it did or didn't. During the Victorian period, it was a very common species of tourism to go to Bedlam and other prisons around London to look at, uh, as they said at the time, the madmen and mad women. And at one point in her life, Charlotte Bronte did such a tour. We think she went to Bedlam. And it's entirely possible she met Richard Dad because aside from the fact that he was probably what we would call these days a paranoid schizophrenic at that point, he was a gentleman and very charming when he wasn't murdering his father and attempting to murder other people. So it's quite possible that the two of them did meet. And in fact, I did an enormous amount of research contacting various uh, descendants of various people. 
And what I found was that no one can prove it didn't happen. So that allowed me to start a novel in which they met at the beginning, then the story bifurcates into Richard Dad's story and into the story of Charlotte Bronte's later years. And she has both personal and professional reasons for wanting to visit Richard Dad. She is interested in the same liminal space between what we would call normality and something more artistically edgy, which is something that destroyed her brother Bramwell. And she's trying to get to work on her new novel and thinks that maybe Richard Dad could give her insight into a split character. Yes, of course. Charlotte Bronte very famously had the sisters, Anne and Emily, who were like her writers. Her brother Branwell was supposed to be the genius of the family. His father placed great hopes in him. He was a painter, although from the evidence left behind, not actually a very good one. He was also a very troubled alcoholic and eventually drug addict who died fairly young, probably of tuberculosis. And so he was an enormous figure as her very troubled brother in Charlotte Bronte's life, obviously very famously in, in her novel, Jane Eyre, there is a mad woman in the attic. It's something that always preoccupied her. So there is some evidence in her letters and so on that in going to Bedlam and the other prisons, she was doing research. She was looking for another novel, yes. Yeah, that that sense of the duality of the artist, the, the genius struggling against the self for supremacy, is something that we see very much in Richard Dad as as you draw him and and something that echoes for her with Bramwell and as we follow Richard's story from his youth to incarceration in Bedlam we can see him beginning to tear apart yes i think when he was young by all accounts and people did write about him he was very charming and very talented as a painter he was regarded as, as so promising that he exhibited, he sold paintings early on. He was something that perhaps Branwell Bronte hoped to be, a much better painter. In fact, he continued painting after he went to Bedlow. I mean, some of his canvases hang in the Tate Gallery and in other collections around England. and around the world. In fact, they sell for millions of dollars these days, which would have shocked him because, you know, his career was extremely odd. He didn't know how he would be remembered in posterity, obviously, as someone with deep mental problems. His canvases become very odd and very powerful as he gets older, extremely detailed. I've got a copy of one of his paintings hanging above my desk. It's called The Fairy Feller's Master Stroke, which of course the rock band Queen used as the title of one of their songs. So he has an influence today, but what we see in the book, what I saw also when I did the research and including in some family papers, was a very well-loved, talented, gregarious, interesting young man. And he made his reputation by painting literary figures. His portrait of Ariel from Shakespeare's The Tempest and Puck from Midsummer's Night's Dream are very well-regarded pieces of art. And they give a clue to his fascination with the, the fairy world, the world of the superhuman. Yes, and of course, when Charlotte Bronte, all of about probably four foot ten, arrived in Bedlam, it would be obvious that at that point he would see her as something of a mysterious fairy, sort of um, a supernatural being, uh, come to visit him. And in a way, of course, Charlotte Bronte was pretty supernatural. She was this was a strange woman in many ways, very demanding. I think, unlike Richard Dad, she wasn't 
regarded as extremely charming. She would say things that people don't say, women don't say, which of course makes her writing fascinating because she also wrote things that were not usual. Her books were a sensation. When Jane Eyre was published, it was just something that nobody had ever seen before. So it wasn't natural. It was kind of supernatural in a way. And dad's fascination as well was with fairies, was with the liminal, was with what we just think we see out of the corner of our eye. And as his mental situation deteriorated, I think what we would say we see out of the corner of our eyes, he thought he saw in the room with him. You know, he saw creatures in the room with him. He would throw plates and dishes at things that weren't there, which wasn't uncommon in Bedlam. So the whole nexus between art and madness and eccentricity is, is something I am interested in, yeah. And it's a very sympathetic portrait of Dad. We follow him as he takes the job that he really has to take, accompanying a not-so-gentlemanly gentleman on his tour of Europe and then Egypt, as this man wants to write a book and have it illustrated in the way that Victorian gentlemen who wished to be remembered in posterity for something would do. And this man sets a terribly hard pace for Richard Dad to keep up with. And we witness his gradual decline until he has a, a complete mental breakdown in Egypt and imagines that he comes face to face with the god Osiris. Well, it, it was, uh, you know, a gentleman's grand tour and Richard Dad was basically his camera. And that's mm. how I think he looked on him to take the pictures that didn't exist then to draw and he did rather gallop. I mean, it was somewhat uncommon to move as rapidly as they did. And through the usual getting ill with stomach problems, with headaches. And originally when Richard Dad started to show signs of a breakdown in Egypt, it was very much the case. He was felt to be suffering from sunstroke. So it was a difficult journey for him but it was one he returned to his whole life while painting in bedlam images recurred pictures of bazaars in the mid-east where they spent a fair bit of time in egypt i mean all of which of course would have been incredibly exotic to a young man from a small town in kent it would have been extremely challenging to the way even somebody who didn't suffer from incipient mental problems would have found to deal with it. it. It asked him to think differently about the world, and he did. And, of course, writers and artists are asked to think differently about the world to show us things about the world that we don't normally see. But that can exact a great toll on people, and it exacted the worst possible toll on Richard Dad, but you know what? It was hard on Charlotte Bronte too. Now, you also introduce other major figures from the world of Victorian arts, such as J.M.W. Turner, and also Mrs. Gaskell, the novelist, who knew both Charlotte Bronte and Richard Dad. She knew everybody. <laughs> Mrs. <laughs> Gaskell is an absolutely fascinating figure because she knew everybody in society. She corresponded with everybody and she asked questions of them in person and in letters that um, normally weren't asked. They just, oh, one didn't say that, you know, except she did. And of course, because her husband was a minister. She could say things that, you know, the wife of a clergyman could say because they were sort of uh, 
nosing around the community, keeping an eye on everybody. But she did it over all of England, pretty much. And she did it over the artistic community there, since, of course, she was a novelist and she was also Charlotte Bronte's first biographer. So I, I actually, I love minor characters. I mean, she is worthy of a book herself, but it's not the one I wrote here. She is incredibly nosy. And as, as you say, it, it, it's a wonderful link to find, as was Richard Dadd's link to Charles Dickens. They both grew up in Chatham, in Kent, and Dickens's father used Richard Dadd's chemist shop. Yes, they knew one another. There are documents showing an awareness on both sides. But one thing that Dickens did, which was fascinating, because uh, he eventually, of course, moved back to Canton and bought an estate called Gads Hill, a short way from where he grew up, and a short way from Chatham. And one of the ways he used to entertain his visitors was by taking a walk with them through the countryside and reaching the spot where, in fact, poor Richard Dad had, in fact, killed his father and reenacting it. And so he was obviously fascinated with Richard Dad's story. They grew up in the same place. They would have known a lot of the same people. In many ways, Dickens wanted to escape it and reinvent himself yet he was drawn back. So I, I also find Dickens a very fascinating character. He plays a, a, a really ambivalent role in this, somebody who knew dad, who used him in a way as entertainment, but who also is on record of having visited him in Bedlam. And you rather neatly bookend the novel with his visit to Mad Richard in Bedlam and suggest that the character of Mr Dick, the madman in David Copperfield, was very much influenced by the story of Richard Dad. There is some evidence of that. Of course, this is a novel, so thankfully I don't have to be, uh, as a historian would, to provide tens of dozens of, of footnotes and speculation, because it, it is speculation. Who, as a writer myself, I of course know that certain situations, certain people I glimpse or, or hear about or whatever can provide inspirations for characters, but it's always very complicated because the interesting thing is that one puts a fair bit of oneself into a lot of characters. So to what extent was Dickens in creating the character, who's a comic character of Mr. Dick, to what extent did he use Richard Dad for that? To what extent did he play with a few worries about himself? And to what extent was it a commentary on society? Because Mr. Dick is a rather sweet character in some ways yet obviously mad. So there was a, an interesting tolerance there too. Yeah, and that question of to what extent can an artist use his or her acquaintances as material for the book or painting that they create is very much at the heart of the novel. It, it's something that Charlotte Bronte wrestles with. It's something that arguably Dickens does as a matter of course. It's certainly something that, as we've discussed, Mrs Gaskell is very easy with. And it's also something that I think rather plagues Richard Dad. It, it, he's rather haunted by the images that he draws of the poor in the Manchester slums. And he, he's terribly troubled that he's taken something and not given anything in return. Well, I think it is a book about artists and art. And it's always troubling when one looks at situations and writes about them. To what extent are you taking? To what extent can you give back? I mean, it's something that is a contemporary matter of discussion in our society with all sorts of, um, you know, there have been a couple of controversies recently where one young woman who was in a group, writer's group with another young woman seems to have used details of, of 
the the other young woman's life in something she'd written. The other woman fought back about it. So to what extent are we allowed to write about other people? To what extent do they have control of their lives? To what extent are we being exploitative? Is art exploitative? And this is obviously especially a question when it comes to writing about people who are of a very different background than ourselves. Uh, I happen to be uh, a white person. If I write about a character who is black, a character who is indigenous uh, from another part of the world, how do I have to check it and to what extent is exploitation involved? It is a fascinating area to explain and I think something we can pick up on after the break. This is My Life in Books on AMI-audio with Red Sale. Welcome back to My Life in Books on AMI-audio with host Red Sale. Welcome back to My Life in Books. This week, I'm in conversation with Leslie Kruger. Leslie, Time Squared was your fifth novel, and I'm guessing you're already hard work on the sixth. Do you feel constrained about what subject matter you can tackle? And and how do you go about choosing the subject for a novel? Uh, Okay, complicated questions. I've actually finished the next book. It'll be out in 2023, in the fall of 2023. I mean, we've been in lockdown. (laughs) (laughs) You've had time on your hands. I've had a lot of time here. The next book is actually set during the Cuban Missile Crisis, so we're moving forward, and it's set in a suburb that I grew up in, which I've fictionalized, a suburb of Vancouver on the west coast of Canada at the time of the crisis. The main character is actually a a young girl of about 10 and 11, just a bit older than me because I she can actually remember she lived through the the missile crisis she lives in the suburb she has a friend a family moves into the suburb about a year before the missile crisis with a young son who becomes a very close friend of hers and then the novel is predicated pretty quickly on some people realizing that the new family may or may not be communists which leads to problems during the crisis itself Now, the thing about the book is that one of the characters, and it's based on a situation, I grew up in a a place much like the suburb of the novel, is uh, an Indigenous man who's a friend of the girl's father. And obviously, it's very sensitive uh, to write about people who are different than you. And even though I grew up in a community with lots of Indigenous friends and so on, and my, the, the character is partly based on the fact that my father did spend a lot of time on the local reserve of the Muscovian people, the Capilano band of the Muscovian people. So I, this character was important to the story, important to, to me in writing it, but I talked to friends about it during the writing. And now that the book is finished, it will go for what is called in the publishing industry these days, a sensitivity read to a woman who, as well as being a writer and a very good writer, is Indigenous, who will be kind enough to look at it. So these are things that one takes into account these days, as one should. And it is a new feature of publishing nowadays, as Fortunately, is the simultaneous publication of an audiobook version of most novels. And you must be delighted with the brilliant job that has been done on both Mad Richard and Times Squared. I, uh, I'm just so lucky. I mean, I, I'm a bit of a, a control freak. I have to admit this. I, I did insist on listening to the auditions of the actors for both books and suggesting which of the ones would be chosen. I think uh, especially with Times Squared, it's because it's a period piece and requires a couple of accents because the characters do jump from England to the US to Canada. It required a person who could talk naturally in all accents. And some of the initial editions by Canadian people sounded like 
a horrible BBC version of a British accent from 1950. It was, you know. Um, so fortunately, uh, Helen Taylor, who narrates Times Square, a wonderful actress here in Toronto, was born in England and came here and, and can do accents perfectly. So what I loved about her narration is that it's just as if she's telling us a story. You know what I heard the other day? I heard this. So I think she does a brilliant job of narrating, as does Pascal Langlois, who did uh, Mad Richard, who is, in fact, uh, British. So he was able to bring not only an understanding of the basic British accent, but of people from different social classes, from different areas of the country, and so that they all carried a suggestion of their backgrounds. Well, Helen Taylor actually wrong-footed me. I had to go back and check that there weren't two narrators reading Times Squared. And as you can imagine, I, I have listened to hundreds of audiobooks over the years. And uh, I think that is a first. I've never been fooled into thinking that there were two separate narrators. Oh, I'll have to tell her. Um, we're just going to talk tomorrow, actually, about something else. And she'll be delighted to hear that. It was actually the first audiobook she'd ever done. Wow. And as you can imagine, her agent is rather busy with requests afterwards. So she was wonderful and so professional. And I sat in on a lot of the sessions and was just amazingly good at doing it quickly. She didn't realize how quickly she was doing it. I think extraordinarily highly of her. And are you a fan of audiobooks yourself, or do you still like to tuck into a paperback? Uh, I like to tuck into paperbacks when they're nonfiction, sort of research books that I'm doing where I will need to scribble down notes and everything. But I like listening to them because sometimes there are whole sections that are kind of interesting but aren't very useful, so that... I'm quite happy to let parts of them pass me by and say, oh, I'm enjoying listening to this, but I'm not working. And then suddenly, scribble, 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 I am working. <laughs> well, I hope that after the break, you'll come back and tell us about some of the books that you've been enjoying in the books of your life. Thank you. Welcome back to My Life in Books on AMI-audio with host Red Sale. Welcome back to My Life in Books, where this month I'm in conversation with Leslie Kruger. So far, we have discussed the books that you've written, but now it's time for you to share some of the books that you've enjoyed in the books of your life. So was there a book that you read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author? Well, you know, we started out by talking about Jane Austen and the first real non-children's book I was given was Pride and Prejudice by I had an aunt who had absolutely no idea what children read and I remember I think I was nine or ten getting this book Pride and Prejudice for Christmas and my mother saying oh that's too old for her which was immediately a challenge and I read it and loved it I loved Elizabeth Bennett she said things uh, we've discussed me growing up in a suburb where one didn't necessarily say things. One didn't say that, you know, sort of thing. And I loved Elizabeth Bennett. I didn't understand a lot of it then, of course, but I still have the book. I brought it out. It's sitting right beside me right now at my desk. Wonderful. And is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread? There's a book I frequently reread, which is by Alice Munro, our Canadian Nobel laureate, The Lives of Girls and Women. She's astonishing. You know, I first read the book when I was in my late teens or early 20s. And as far as I was concerned, it was a book about a young woman named Del Jordan who had a fairly annoying mother. Ancient, you know, she had to be at least 38 or 40. And I just I loved it and I reread it and reread it at the time. Then I didn't read it for a long time. Then I was an old woman of 38 or 40 myself and I reread it and I thought, well, this is an amazing book because the mother is just as rounded and just as fascinating and interesting a character as, as young Dell. And I read a different book at that time. 
And since then, I've gone back to it periodically because, I mean, Alice Munro is just brilliant. You know, one of the things I do, I, I teach uh, sometimes. And when I teach short stories, I, I can teach some brilliant short stories by Margaret Atwood. I taught one recently by Ted Chang's novel, Stories Exhalation. I cannot teach Alice Munro because I cannot break her apart and show how she does anything. And that astonishes me. I keep trying to figure it out and I still haven't. And finally, is there a book you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners? I've read a book that I think is, is a wonderful book called uh, What Strange Paradise by Omar El-Akkad. He has written what is essentially a fable about refugees. The main characters are a young boy who gets on a boat in Egypt and crosses the Mediterranean to Greece, a young Greek girl who tries to help him at the other side. And everything is simple. It's a short book. It's, it's barely longer than a novella. It's incredibly simply written, beautifully written. Omar Al-Akkad was a journalist. He actually worked on the, the Globe and Mail, which is the big newspaper here in Canada. And he yet has written a book that's incredibly rich and incredibly deep, a, a fable about not just this little boy, but about all refugees and all people who try and help them and about the incredible subtlety and beauty and sorrow and misunderstandings that are involved with a kernel on the tail of these two children. Leslie Kruger, thank you so much for sharing your joy of reading with the listeners and for being a guest on the show. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks again to my guest, Leslie Kruger, and to the show's producer, Sean Priest. He and I are already working on the next episode. So don't forget to join us, same time, same place, to listen to another top author talking books. In the meantime, if you'd like to drop us a line or leaf through our back catalogue, here's how. Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favourite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this programme by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books, or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time. Hello, I'm Sean Priest. Join me monthly for Sean of the Shed, where I introduce you to all the technology that can be so useful to us as blind or partially sighted people. Find Sean of the Shed wherever you find all your podcasts.